Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, our text this morning, verses 1 to 11. John 18. We began working our way through John's Gospel in the middle of 2021, uh, so almost two years ago. But as we've been working our way through this, this gospel, I've been trying to remind us over and again that the, the keynote of the, of the book, what tells you the theme, is actually at the end of the book. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John said, These things are written that you might believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. We've been trying to show through each section as we've been working our way through the gospel that that this this book is geared towards that very end, that you might believe, that you might rest upon Jesus over and over again. You might receive him over and over again. But if there was any section that did this, that had this as its clear purpose, it's this final section that we begin this morning here in John chapter 18 as as we come to Gethsemane. And we see here uh, against the darkness of the scene, we see here how it is that Jesus is, is our Christ. He's our Messiah. He's our, he's our Savior. And he calls us to rest again in him. But in order for that purpose, that end to be accomplished in our hearts and lives, we, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, Spirit, we do desperately need your help. We pray, O Lord, that you would open our eyes of faith this morning and that you would use your Holy Spirit to take his word, which he inspired the gospel writer, John, to write, or that the Holy Spirit would take his word and use it in our hearts and lives. Lord, please take our stony, calcified hearts, make them flesh, Kindle a fire of love and adoration in us so that we might leave this place loving you and singing your praise and wondering at your grace. Lord, grant us this, we ask, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden where which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back And fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. 
So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We, we've arrived with Jesus to the final hours before his crucifixion. In, in these final hours, Jesus' interactions will be connected with particular places, with Gethsemane, with the high priest's house where the Sanhedrin will hastily gather, with Pilate's judgment hall, with that rock called Golgotha, which also means skull, with the garden tomb. We will only learn to love and sing and wonder as we come to these places and we see uh, Jesus' interactions and we hear his words and we feel the import of all that is happening. Indeed, we must heed the words of the old hymn this morning. Go to dark Gethsemane. Follow to the judgment hall. Calvary's mournful mountain climb. And early hasten to the tomb. This morning we go to dark Gethsemane. But as we go to that place this morning, we immediately recognize that John's telling of Gethsemane is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's, the the so-called synoptic gospels. And we notice that here we don't find uh, Jesus praying in humble submission to the Father's will. We don't find here the the disciples' failure to watch with Jesus one hour. We don't even find here the drops of blood coming from the Savior's brow as he labors in prayer. No, instead, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John's focus uh, comes in on, on three key figures, three dramatis personae, if you will, The spotlight shines on three. There are two who bookend the scene. The spotlight will shine on Judas and and Peter. When the light shines on Judas, we will see what faithlessness looks like. When it shines on Peter, we'll see folly. But whether Judas or Peter, whether faithlessness or folly... The light shines on them to give us examples of ourselves, of of what we are like, what the human condition is like, apart from the grace of God. But it's against that, that darkness, the darkness of Gethsemane, the, the, the darkness that even the spotlights can't do away in Judas and Peter, it's against all of that that the light shines on the central figure, the centerpiece of our passage this morning. There in dark Gethsemane, we see Jesus. And though a a band of soldiers and 
Sanhedrin officials will surround him at that holy spot with lanterns and torches and weapons as though Jesus was a common criminal. Yet we see his glory as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as your Savior, and as mine. But before we can properly see Jesus in the center of this scene, we must cast our eyes to the beginning and the end where the spotlight shines. First, we see the spotlight shining in the darkness on, on Judas. This is the first time we've seen Judas since John chapter 13. The first time we, we saw him, we have seen him in this, in this gospel from that point after Jesus had watched his disciples' feet and, and Satan had entered into him and, and Jesus had spoken to him, whatever you must do, do quickly. The first time we've seen him since he went out into the darkness. Judas knew his way. He knew his way in the darkness. He knew to where to find Roman soldiers and and. Jewish religious officials. He needed them to effect the arrest. And so with this unruly mob and their weaponry to try to go and capture Jesus, the question had to come to Judas's mind, where will I find him? Where will I go to find Jesus? Well, the text doesn't say it, but, but surely if we were to put ourselves in Judas's place, the first place we would have gone is to the upper room. That, that was the last time that, that Judas had seen Jesus, seen the expression in his eyes, heard the, the tone of his voice, received the morsel of bread from his hands. And so presumably, Judas and his mob went to the upper room, but not finding Jesus there, where would be the next place to look? Where would be the mo next most likely place to find Jesus. Gethsemane. Gethsemane. That's what verse 2 tells you. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. It's the first time John's mentioned that. But, but the other gospel writers do. For example... Luke says in Luke 27 verse, excuse me, Luke chapter 21 verse 37, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And then again, Luke chapter 22 verse 39, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And so there on the Mount of Olives, less than a Sabbath day journey from the upper room there in the garden called Gethsemane, where, where Judas, under the influence of the, of the serpentine power, came there. Judas went because he knew the place. Because he had, he had been there with Jesus. He had, he had prayed there with Jesus. How awful Judas appears to us to betray Jesus, the Son of Man, this way. To defile that most holy place that had been set apart, consecrated by the very presence of the God-man. 
to come into that place where, where Judas had, had prayed with Jesus to arrest him. It's unthinkable. It's just as, as sacrilegious as if, if, as if the Memphis police officers were to come rushing into the sanctuary here in just a few moments to take away a pastor or an elder, surely. They would have the decency to wait until after this season of prayer and word and sacrament be over. Surely they'd have to be the decency for, for us to leave the sacred place before they would effect their arrest, but not Judas. No, Judas comes to the holy place. And yet as awful as that is, that's not the most horrible thing here. Here's the true horror. Judas knew the place. He had prayed with Jesus there. He had heard Jesus teach there. And yet he still came to betray Jesus. Still came to, be, to deliver him over to death. Could it be possible that there might be someone here who is committing that same horror, trapped in the same awfulness? Because you've come to this place. You've come to this place as a church where you, at least you, you had the idea that Jesus regularly comes here comes into the midst of his people, comes to declare his word and, and to offer his body and blood and, and to receive the prayers of his people. You, you've come to this place. Perhaps it's this church where you were baptized or a church like it. Perhaps it was here that you were taught to pray, our Father in heaven. Perhaps it was here that you, you presented yourself over and again under the preaching of God's word and, and the administration of the sacraments, but you've come here like Judas. Though Jesus was here, you knew him not. Though his, his gospel was preached to you, you didn't believe it. Though you may have even taken the cup, you may have even taken the bread, having been admitted to it because you made some kind of profession of faith, yet you knew there was no reality in your heart. Friend, could it be that you're no better off than Judas, just as faithless? The, heed the warning of the Bible. My friend, it is entirely possible to know where and to come to the place where Jesus often meets with his disciples and yet not be a disciple. It is entirely possible and indeed often happens that those who are accounted to be professing believers whom others look at and say, oh, he's a good man, oh, oh yes, oh, she's a good woman, and yet you know in your heart of hearts, you have no commitment to Jesus Christ. He is not your Savior and he's not your Lord. And you are in fact a hypocrite, a faithless one, like Judas. And yet, this passage not only shines the warning by shining a light upon Judas and his faithlessness, it speaks to others of us because at the very end of the passage as a kind of bookend to Judas the light shines on Peter and we see his folly. Unlike Judas, Peter stays in the upper room. Unlike Judas, he hears the master's teaching. He hears his prayers, especially Jesus' claim in that, in that 
high priestly prayer and that farewell prayer, which, which John repeats in our passage, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Peter hears that. And so, unlike Judas then, Peter is a true disciple. He is a genuine believer in Jesus. And yet, Peter clearly feels the responsibility of, of the band of disciples, of this group. As in the other Gospels, so it was in John's Gospel that Peter, as the leader, as the representative of the disciples, he professes their common faith in Jesus. Remember, we saw it in John chapter 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And in the upper room, when Jesus begins to, to warn of his impending death, you remember Peter as the representative of the group, as the leader. He rebukes Jesus, to which Jesus will say, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. And so it's as the leader, the one who's professed on behalf of the group their commitment, the one who professed his loyalty to Jesus to such a degree that he was willing to die, he said. It's as the leader that Peter acts. In verse 10, And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. On the surface, we can appreciate Peter's bravery, can't we? In the face of, of, a, of a band of, of professional Roman soldiers, as well as Jewish officials, he sought to defend the master. He took out his sword. He was going to hack his way through them or die in, attempt, in an attempt to rescue Jesus. To deliver him, but, but we, we recognize in Peter's bravado his folly. Folly to take on professional fighting men, one sword against a score. Folly to strike the one man who was probably the least likely to do him harm, the high priest servant Malchus, who was only there to make sure that things happened as they ought. But above all, folly. Folly bordering on unbelief. Because was Peter really going to rescue Jesus? Peter deliver Jesus? Friends, you see his, his folly in the fact that he's gotten the plot all twisted around. He's, he's lost the very understanding of what he had professed so many chapters before. And in Jesus' commanding rebuke here, you, you actually hear that note when Jesus says in verse 11, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, Peter's folly was not recognizing that Jesus had to take the cup of suffering. He had to go to Golgotha's hill. He had to be nailed to the cross. That was the only way, not for Peter to rescue Jesus, but for Jesus to rescue Peter. Only by taking that cup of suffering would Jesus deliver Peter? Oh, friends, what folly it is to believe that, that somehow we can, we can have a part in our own salvation. What a folly it is to believe that somehow we can contribute in some way, that we can somehow rescue Jesus, and in doing so, deliver him, in doing so, somehow contribute to 
to our position before Jesus, before a watching world. We also can see some of his folly in, in the way that Peter believes that, that somehow he has, to, he has to make Jesus safe. He has to rescue Jesus from ignominy and abuse. He has to protect him from this, this hostile hatred of, the, of a dark and gloom-filled world. And yet, Peter's folly isn't that different from our own, is it? I mean, we, we try all sorts of ways to do the Lord's work in our own way. There's all sorts of ways in which we try to rescue Jesus. We try to protect him from the ignominy of others. We try to somehow keep him from the hostile hatred of a, of a, of a world that's hostile. A world that's all, about which he's already spoken that the world will hate you because it be, you belong to me. And yet we try to rescue him from it. We, we, we take the gospel and we trim it and we shave it and we soft pedal it. We don't want to talk about judgment and we don't want to talk about sin and we don't want to talk about hell. We really want to believe that, that we really are fundamentally good people and that our friends are as well. And we want to invite them because here you'll hear a comfortable message. Here you'll hear only of God's love and not of God's wrath. Here, come, join us. Friends, that cannot be. It's the same folly that Peter committed trying to somehow adapt to protect, to rescue Jesus. I want to be sure our, our motivations are good. We want to get a hearing for Jesus. We, we don't want the world around us to hate Jesus and so hate us. We don't want him to experience ignominy and abuse, and neither do we want to experience that. But in, in doing this, we're, we're just like Peter. We lose the plot. We get it all twisted around. Because, friends, we don't rescue Jesus he rescues us. We don't deliver him. He delivers us. And that's why the light shines, having shown on these bookend characters, Judas and Peter, faithlessness and folly. That's why the light turns in the center of the scene to the central figure, Jesus himself. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John tells us that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. There were no surprises here to Jesus. The reason he knew before, he foreknew, is because he had foreordained. Because he had purposed these very things to happen. These things were all in his sovereign control. There was no fortune, no luck, no accident here. Jesus is, is the commanding figure. He's in complete control, which is why he steps forward. Did you notice that? It's just a little detail, but it shows you that Jesus is, is completely in control. In verse 4, it says that. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He stepped forward. That's completely different from the way I would have been. If I had been with my friends and this crowd had come to arrest me, I would have been hiding behind the others, trying to figure out a way, my eyes darting this way and that way. How do I escape from this scene? But Jesus doesn't. He's not hiding. No, his hour has come. This very moment is here, and Jesus steps forward. Knowing that he's come for this moment, he has come to this moment, and he asks the soldiers, whom do you seek? 
They tell them, tell him that he's, they're seeking him, Jesus of Nazareth. And upon hearing his name, he says in Greek, ego eme. Ego eme. Our English version translates that as I am he. But most literally, most technically, it's I am. And I think that makes sense of verse 6. Why the response occurs when Jesus said to them, I am. They drew back and fell to the ground. These refugee men, these soldiers, these professional religious people, they drew back from the holy. They drew back from the glorious one. They, they fell on their faces and they bent their knees because they have come to the one who is God himself, who is there on Sinai, who said, I am that I am. And in this moment, that one said, I am. And in the darkness, the lightning struck. And they saw just a glimpse, just a moment in the darkness, who this is, who this person is is this is the god man this is the word became flesh and they were forced to bend the knee and to fall on their face and to pay obeisance to jesus and then just in a moment the darkness floods back and jesus asks them again whom do you seek and in the second exchange you move from seeing some of the wonder of Jesus' person there in dark Gethsemane to hearing and seeing the wonder of his work. You see what he says, verse 8? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now on the surface, Jesus is simply telling the soldiers and the officials, you don't need these others. If you have me, let them go their own way. But John points out in verse 9 that there's more than this. Rather, these words that Jesus says, if you seek me, let them go, these words that Jesus says are actually connected to the disciples' rescue their deliverance, their salvation, but not just the disciples, your rescue, our deliverance, this salvation. Because here in these words, we have a glorious picture of Jesus' substitution, his substitution for sinners like you and me. If you seek me, let these men go. And so the law comes and demands a payment for sin, for all of our, our death-deserving law-breaking. The law thunders and threatens and says, either this one must die, this one must spend an eternity in hell, and even then, though eternity upon eternity shall roll, he will never pay the debt, she will never pay the debt due for the breaking of the law of the most holy God. This one must be thrown into judgment. The law comes forward and Jesus presents himself and says, if you seek me, if you seek me with, with my substitution, as I step into the void, 
as I hang there on the cross and as I satisfy the law's demands, you, you demand an eternity's worth of, of, of merit and value. Here it is that the God-man dies on the cross in the place of sinners. Here I am. I substitute for him. I substitute for her. Take me. Let him go. Let them go. The devil himself steps forward. The great accuser of the brethren. And he stands before the judge and he, he accuses you, man. And he says, you see this man, he's no better than Peter. He's foolish. He does all sorts of things that border on unbelief. One day he's up, the another day he's down. He seems to forsake his very profession. He would deny you for a crust of bread if he could. Oh, look at this one. And then you see this woman. She's just like Judas. She grew up at this church, Independent Presbyterian Church. She was baptized here. She went through Sunday school here. She went through student ministry here. And now she's a young adult or an adult. And, and yet she's faithless. So others account her to be something and someone. But, but, but judge, you know her. You know how faithless she is. And you hear the devil's accusation. But at that moment, Jesus steps forth. And he says, five bleeding wounds I bear received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers for fools like Peter and for faithless ones whom I have chosen to save, who act like Judas, yet will be rescued. If you seek me, devil, let them go free. Let that man go free. Let that woman go free. But then our conscience steps forward. And our conscience brings up over and again as it has ever since our first profession of faith in Jesus, ever since our, our first trusting in him brings up that event from 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. That, that situation that you found yourself in, that sin that you committed, that even to this day you do not understand. How in the world did I end up in that place and in that situation and your conscience accuses you, even though you've been walking with Christ all these years, that sin comes forward to accuse you and to repeatedly say, how could you have done that? You're not done paying for that. I will haunt you to your dying day. And at that moment, Jesus comes forward and he says, conscience, be quiet. Be quiet. Because the law threatened it sought me, and I satisfied it. The devil accused this one. I came forward, and I quieted him. And if I can quiet the law's loud thunder, and if I can shut the mouth of the devil, then conscience, you must be satisfied. If you seek me, let him go. Let her go. Don't you see why Jesus says this? The, because he will not lose a single one of his own. That's what John says. He will not lose a single one of his own. He must fulfill his word. He must be the answer to his own prayer. And the way he will do this, the way he will do this for you and the way he does this for me is he must go from Gethsemane and he must go through the judgment hall and he must come to Golgotha. And he must be nailed on a wooden cross, suspended between heaven and earth. And there on the cross, he must hear and then hush the law's loud thunder. And he must quench Mount Sinai's flame. But friends, because Jesus the Messiah, 
Jesus, the Son of God, because he went to the cross. When we, when we rest our hearts in Jesus, we have been given title to point to mercy's stores, to his blood, to his righteousness, to his substitutionary death for us, and justice has to smile. And it can ask no more. Because justice sought Jesus. And Jesus stepped forward. And he said, here I am. I've come willingly. As a willing substitute. As a willing sacrifice. And because I stepped forward willingly for you. You must and you shall go free. Friends, shouldn't we love and sing in wonder? Wonder at such grace here in dark Gethsemane. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do. We stand amazed. In the midst of this dark scene, in the midst of you know, the depths of our dark hearts, we do wonder at you that you would love sinners like us, that you would go to such lengths as our substitute to, to save us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would remove our stony hearts this morning, that you would take away our stony hearts and replace them with a heart of flesh, take away all our willfulness, all our wrongfulness, all our bitterness, all our badness, take it all away and renew yet again are resting in you and are relying upon you and are receiving you for justification, for sanctification, for perseverance to the end. Lord, please, we come to you. And we ask that you would do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, these wonderful